from the moment Jesus stepped into Jerusalem to his arduous journey to be crucified and into his glorious resurrection. Come and listen in as Dr. Andy Brown shares the truly awesome significance of the holiest of weeks. This is Hearing is Believing. Would you take your Bible tonight and join me in the book of Mark? And all during this week as we're together, we're going to be traveling through Mark and we're going to be making a few pit stops along the way as as the Gospel of Mark begins to paint a picture for us of what the Passion Week looked like. So would you join me tonight, please, in Mark chapter 11. Tonight we'll be looking at verses 15 through 19 together. And what we're going to see tonight is something that is maybe unexpected as we think about the Holy Week, as we think about the Passion Week. We have to remember that this event of Jesus cleansing the temple was exactly part of His going to the cross. And as we think about Mark chapter 15, this is the way that I'd like to open tonight, just with a question, just so that you can begin to think. Has anyone in here ever been to a wedding where someone objected to the marriage? Have you ever been there? You know, as a minister, I've never been to a wedding where someone objects to the marriage, but as a minister, I've always wanted to know what would happen. What would happen if all of a sudden... Who gives this man? Is there anyone who objects? And someone stands up and says, I do. What do you do in that moment? This is especially true, like I said, now that I'm the one standing behind the podium asking the question, what if there, what would I do if someone objects? Now, I've read a lot of ministerial books. I've read a lot of little, little booklets about how to do marriages and such, but I have yet to read the chapter in the ministry book entitled, What to Do When Someone Objects. I don't know what I would do. But think about just the the taboo of disrupting the wedding ceremony. It's taboo. How dare anyone disrupt a wedding ceremony? But yet, we still have it in the ceremony. At least, I have it in the ceremony that I do. Why is that? Because even though it's solemn, it's a worshipful experience, it's so solemn that we want to make sure that every angle is covered. Better to have a wedding ceremony disrupted than to enter an entire marriage and life to have the disruption come later. Well, that's marriage. But what about the way that we worship? What about the time that we come together, not just in a worship service like we have here tonight, but what about the times when we're out on our job, wherever we find ourselves having those moments of worship? What about those moments? And let me just say to everyone tonight, everyone in here is a worshiper. Everyone in the world is a worshiper, as a matter of fact. Even the atheists, those who say that there is no God, unbeknownst to them, they are still worshiping someone or something. Is there ever a time, if we are talking about worship tonight, if, is there ever a time when worship needs to be disrupted? Absolutely. The reason why we would say worship needs to be interrupted is because we understand worship as being a matter of life and death, right? Who you worship, what you worship, determines your eternal destiny. That's what we confess as believers. We confess that worship and eternity go together. So in other words, if that's important, then we better get it right. So tonight, I want us to turn our attention to the Bible to Mark chapter 11. And tonight we're going to see 
the only recorded act of aggression by Jesus. And the reason that he calls it a disruption is because he wants to show, he wants to show that the people who are worshiping, even though they have all the right appearances of worship, they are not really worshiping. You see, here's what I want to show you tonight through reading this text together and through going through it. Have this in your mind. Jesus was not the disruption. He was responding to an already disruptive worship service. And so think about this. Here we have this wonderful picture of this God who is ready to overturn tables. This God who is ready to go and to take a, a, a cord and go after the boys because that's how important and that's how dynamic Jesus, our God, sees worship. And you need to know something tonight. God will fight for your heart to worship Him. God will pursue you relentlessly because He cares more about His name than He cares about anything else. So let's read the Bible tonight, beginning in Mark chapter 11 in verse... 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and they entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Tonight, from this text, I want to give you five signs, five indicators for you to test to see if your worship has been disrupted. Five tests to see if your worship has been disrupted. So what are those five signs taken right from this text? Number one, the sign that your worship has been disrupted is that your love has grown cold. If you're here tonight and your love has grown cold for Jesus, what that means is that your worship has been disrupted by something. Look at the Bible here. Look at what's going on in chapter 11 and verse 15. Notice that this phrase here is mentioned again. Here they are, back in Jerusalem. Do you see it? We've already opened up chapter 11. I told you yesterday, if you remember, Jerusalem is peppered all throughout the gospel of Mark, and it does it to show a purpose. So here we have Jerusalem in chapter 11 and verse 1. And what happened in Jerusalem? We celebrated it yesterday, Palm Sunday. Remember, it was this ginormous fanfare of individuals greeting him, crying out, Hosanna to God in the highest, Lord save us. Finally, the kingdom of David has come. They were laying down their palm branches, all of this grand excitement. And look at the way that it ends in verse 11 of chapter 11. And he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple. When he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The king left the city without his followers except the twelve. All the ginormous fanfare. And then all of a sudden, we have them entering again Jerusalem in verse 15. What happened? They come to Jerusalem but they didn't experience the same fanfare. Where are all the ones ready to greet Jesus? Where are all the crowds ready to crown Him Lord of Lords and King of Kings? He was quickly forgotten. 
Instead, what was going on is he sees he comes to the temple and he's already come in verse 11. And I love the way 11.11 reads. He comes to the temple not to see what's going on, but he's coming as the Lord of the temple, the Messiah, coming to inspect and to see what exactly is going on. So he comes in in verse 11 as sort of a preemptive look. And remember, the events of the Passion Week are chronological. Sunday happened. He enters in this triumphal entry, and now we have Monday, just a day later, and he enters. So he already knows. No doubt, if, if they are uh, set up like they probably were, then the money-changing tables would have already been there. And where were they set up? They were set up right outside in the court of Gentiles, right in the way where the only place that the Gentiles had to worship. And so he comes in, and no doubt there was this great fanfare. Josephus tells us, and he was an ancient historian, uh, Jewish historian, this is just to give us a picture of how crowded the place may have been in 66 A.D., which is about 30 three years after what when Jesus entered and he cleans the temple in our text tonight 33 years later in 66 four years before the temple is destroyed by the Romans Josephus records that during the passion week during Passover week there were over 200,000 lambs slaughtered you know what that tells me there's a lot of people in Jerusalem at this time And so what do we have to learn from this? We look at this and we say, where have all the crowds gone? Where are all the people that greeted Jesus? He enters this and he sees all this sacrifice. And you think that he would be so excited to see all these pilgrims have made it all the way to Jerusalem. And they're so excited to see. uh, You think that he'd be so excited to see the blood being spilt and atonement being made. But he's not. Because he knows that the people are just merely focusing on the externals. And God has never been about the externals. Focusing on the externals, the message of the Bible is clear, and it beats time and time and time again. This is the message of the prophets. Remember, this is the message of the Bible. The, uh, Abraham, Paul tells us in Romans, that he, was, he believed God, and it was accredited to him because of his faith, his righteousness. So God has always been concerned with the heart. Do you remember when he went up and, and Jesse had sons, and they wanted to pick one of the sons who was going to be the next king after Saul, and Jesse brought all of these kids that were the tallest and strongest and bravest and God rejected all of them and then they brought a little Rudy David you remember little old David my grandmother would probably say about as high as a uh, a knee to a grasshopper old David there he was sitting and what did Samuel say to Jesse he said God doesn't see as man sees he sees the heart I don't know about you tonight but that really shakes me to my core To realize that God sees my heart, but yet He still loves me the same. God sees the times when I don't feel like praying. The times that I bring a what I think is an alabaster jar of prayer to Him. The times that I bring some fancy prayer to Him that He sees the root of it all. And I don't know about you, but that shakes me a little bit. But the message of the prophets has always been the same and that God desires our hearts to be worshipful to Him. So don't think that Jesus is coming in and saying, we're going to abolish the temple. We're going to get rid of the temple system. That's not what's going on here. God was not against the temple. But the temple was this house of worship. 
The temple was this place that was to be separate. The temple was this place that was to be holy unto the Lord. It's the place, one particular place on the earth before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And this is so important. This is why Acts is so important. The, uh, when, the, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, the temple served as a one particular spot in one place where Yahweh was worshipped out of all the other gods as if they are gods. This was one place where Yahweh was worshipped by His people. And then they had this mandate. This mandate for them was to say, all right, just as Jerusalem sat on this hill and they worshipped Jerusalem, they were to be a lighthouse to the nations to shine their lights into the world to have people join them in worshipping the God who was king over all the earth. And so the key to worship is not the sacrifice. Listen carefully to me. The key to worship is not sacrifice. The key to worship is the condition of your heart. This is the reason that David prayed that wonderful prayer of repentance after he had committed sin with Bathsheba. And Nathan came out and said, he told him this parable about this man who he had everything, but this one little shepherd had one little lamb that he loved and adored. And the guy who had everything went and took the one thing that the man had and loved the most. And then David prays, and he prays Psalm 51, and he prays a prayer of forgiveness. And he comes to the end of it at 16 and 17, and he says this. He says this to God. He says, you will not delight in sacrifice otherwise I would give it you will not be pleased with a burnt offering and then David in all of his brokenness comes to God and he says the sacrifice of God or a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart oh God you will not despise God sees the heart David could have gone out and slaughtered 200,000 lambs himself. And if his heart was not right before God, if he had not had 16 verses before Psalm 51, 16 of repentance, begging for God to cleanse him, saying to God against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is wicked in your sight. That's how you know, dear friends, whether or not your love has grown cold is where's the condition of your heart. Think about what Isaiah says, the message of the prophets again. Isaiah chapter 66 says, Thus saith the Lord, heaven is my throne. And this is so important because we're in, in the context of Isaiah 66. He's talking about sacrifices. And after I read what I read to you here in verses 1 and 2, he goes on and talks about sacrifices. But listen to what God says to the people of Israel. This is the same God in Isaiah. In the beginning part, he says, I don't delight in your new moon festivals, all these things that you do. Your lips are close to me, but your heart is far from me. You worship me with your mouth, but your heart is far from me. And then God says, I don't even delight on these things anymore because I realize where your heart is. And so God says this in chapter 66 of Isaiah, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All those things my hand has made. And so all those things came to be, declares the Lord. And so in other words, I think what the passage is saying there is it's saying we think that we are owing or we think that we are uh, doing God a favor by coming in to worship him. And God says, your heart's not near me. 
just as these people didn't greet Jesus again when he came into the temple. They didn't recognize him as that same one that was wearing probably the same clothes that had just come riding in on the donkey. They didn't recognize him. They didn't care. Now, remember who this is. This is Jesus, okay? This guy's pretty popular. This guy has been the guy who just a few chapters earlier healed a blind man. So people know, remember the blind Bartimaeus in chapter 10 says that he heard Jesus was coming. So why didn't the crowds greet him? Because they were focused on the wrong thing. They were focused on the externals. But listen to what God says. He says, in other words, all these things are in my hand. Heaven is the place that I dwell. You think you can give me anything? And then he says this, but this is the one to whom I will look. The one who sacrifices the most for me. Is that what the Bible says? No, it says, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. And you and I, dear friends, we can be guilty of the same if we are not careful. We can neglect the fact that we are accepted by God on account of Christ, not on account of what we do. That's the message of the gospel. That God accepts us because He has made our heart right. The way that He has made our heart right is through giving us a new heart. Making our heart, as Ezekiel says, removing the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh ready to obey Him. So you say, well, wait just a minute now. The only remedy for our love that's growing cold is for us to realize the hope that we have in Jesus. Okay, well, since we just have hope in Jesus, then that means that we don't have to do anything, right? Because we already are accepted by God, so just, we can just do whatever we want. Quite the opposite. We do a great deal for God because now our hearts are ready to obey Him. So now our hearts are entirely changed. This is why most of you, and like me, you've repented of more stuff now that you're a Christian than you did when you were before because God is constantly taking His Spirit and guiding us, driving us into the ground, into our knees so that we can worship Him fully and wholeheartedly. So instead of once a year or once a week, we understand that our entire lives has been consumed by this God who himself is a consuming fire. But so often we're so ritualistic thinking that uh, we think that through rituals, reading our Bibles, coming to church, praying. We think that through rituals we can achieve what God desires when the rituals, listen carefully, when the rituals of worship are to be used as an expression of God's acceptance of us. Do you hear that? We worship because we are accepted, not accepted by our worship. That's not what happens. We worship over the overflow, over the abundance of our heart. So, this day, here's the truth this evening. This day, we can live our life in the myopic bondage of ritualism or lifeless religion. Or, we can have our hearts so set aflame, ready in every instance to express our deep love for Jesus. Now, it's obvious. It's obvious when a people of God have lost their love for Jesus. You walk into a place and you can just sense that the love of God is not there. You say, well, how do you know the difference? 
You know the difference by being exposed to those who have shoved themselves close to the fire of God's holiness. You know the difference. When you meet those people who are set on fire for Jesus, and then in our longing and in our heart, we wonder, wow, why can't I be like that when God's saying, that's who you are. All you have to do is realize it. That's who you, this is who you are. It's not like there's some super Christian out to save the day. It's who you are. You just haven't realized it yet. It's who God has called us to be. You see, there is such a difference between those who come to worship service out of a sense of obligation, those who come to a worship service as an overflow of what is already a white-hot passion for Jesus. Oh, that God would set my soul afire. I remember one time as a young preacher, probably 17 years old, going to a revival meeting and having uh, someone sing an old song, Set my soul afire, Lord, for thy holy word. And I remember sitting on the pew before I got up to preach, and I remember writing it in the leaf of my Bible, the words of that song, Set my heart afire, Lord, for thy holy word. Why? We're in a Methodist town, so I think that I can say this. John Wesley, he said it best to young preachers. He said, set yourself on fire and people will come to watch you burn. Oh, that God would set my heart on fire for him. Do you realize how dynamic this could have been and how it wasn't? The King of glory, the prophesied Messiah had come. The one who Ezekiel said, the glory of the Lord will fill the temple. And here he is, already had his moment of transfiguration, already let his glory escape just a little bit. Could you just imagine what it would have been like? Instead of him overturning tables, it could have been dynamic. The glory of the Lord would have filled the temple and they would have worshipped God like they've never worshipped him before. But instead... He has to disrupt their worship service. Instead, he has to meet individuals whose love have grown cold and they don't even realize it. Just like the old tree that we come down the interstate and we see a tree that is now wrapped in kudzu. What's underneath that kudzu? Used to be a pretty tree, probably. And that kudzu vine, you think it just all of a sudden came up and said, Hey, tree, I'm going to wrap around you. No, that's not what happened. Inch by inch, by vine, by vine, until all of a sudden, the tree is not even recognizable anymore. The tree, instead of looking like a tree, had great intentions of growing up being a tree, (laughs) if you can grow up and be a tree. Great intentions of, of doing what a tree does, but instead it's turned into a monster. Little by little by little. But thanks be to God, in this case, the Savior came with his axe. The Savior came to disrupt something that would have been diabolically horrid. So Jesus meets these individuals. And here's the truth this evening that we must learn. Individuals whose love has grown cold for God, they surely will slip into the next characteristic of what I want you to see. You'll know if your worship is disrupted. Not only if, you, if your love for God has grown cold, but number two, if you forget the mission. 
for what God has called you to do. This temple that Jesus is entering, this place of worship, had a mission. It didn't just serve as a pretty building. It had a purpose. The purpose was to draw individuals to God. And so look at what Jesus says here. He comes in and He sees everything set up. He sees the, the money changers and all these things. He comes in, and I love how Mark, he just doesn't waste any time. He began to drive out those who sold, those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold the pigeons. And he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And look at this in verse 17. I love this. He was teaching them. Why was he doing it? Because he was teaching them. Saying to them, notice what he said first. Is it not written? Same thing that he said to the devil in the wilderness. Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Your worship will be disrupted in your life if you forget the mission. If you forget what we as a people of God are to be about The Great Commission is something not that we just put as a tagline. It's the reason for our existence as a church. The reason why in 1960, whenever someone built the walls to this church and with $14 in the bank or whatever it was, they erected this building out of of faith so the gospel of Jesus Christ could be spread through this community. That's the reason why we're here. Not so that we can be comfortable. Not so that we can look and see we have these pretty lights now, or whatever the case may be. Why are we here to worship, to fulfill the Great Commission? John Piper said it best. He says, missions exist in the world because worship does not. You ever thought of that? Why do we do missions? Because worship doesn't exist. And our God loves to be worshipped. Our purpose as a people of God is the same purpose as it was for the Jews. It's the same purpose that it was for the temple. The temple, like I said, was a place for the glory of God to be displayed. That's the reason that it was there. Now, think about this. The purpose of that one building was so the glory of God could be displayed. And then I love the way the New Testament writes. It turns that theology and it expands it and it shows the direction of the entire intention of God. And then it looks in 1 Corinthians and it says, You, you believers, are a temple of the living God. And that word temple there in 1 Corinthians is the word naos, which is the word holy of holies. We're the place where you get to meet God. That's what our bodies are. And so in other words, you and I, we were created for fellowship. All of mankind, listen carefully, all of mankind was created for fellowship. And so what does that mean? It means that God's intentions from mankind is glory. That's why the Westminster Shorter Catechism says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Not the chief end of men, but the chief end of mankind. Everyone's intention is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so we, who are the covenant people of God, we have a responsibility, as Jesus told us. That responsibility is to let our light so shine before men that they will glorify God in heaven. And you ask the question, what is the light? The light is simple. The light is the glory of God. Look what happens here in the Bible in verse 17. 
when Jesus quotes the Old Testament. You see that? Jesus quoting the Old Testament to a bunch of Jews, telling them most of them probably had gone through Hebrew school. And what is Hebrew school? It's before the age of 12 or 13. You have to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So in other words, they should have known this. For him to be a rabbi, for him to be a teacher, of course he's teaching. He comes in and he quotes the Old Testament saying, guys, you should get this. He's reminding them of the intention that they serve as a people of God. He said, it is written in the Bible, in the Scriptures, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And I couldn't help when I read this to think about 1 Kings chapter 8 especially is that time when Solomon dedicates the temple. Solomon dedicates the temple and then he has this wonderful prayer of praise. And then uh, after the Ark of the Covenant is brought into the temple in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 8, it says this, When the priest came out, the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. Listen to this. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And so then Solomon, as the glory of the Lord is filling the house of of God. Solomon prays a prayer of dedication. And in that prayer, here's what he says. Listen to this closely. This is in Solomon's prayer of the dedication of the temple. He says this, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, he's talking to God, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. Listen to this. Why? In order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. And do as your people Israel, that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. In other words, God's mission has always been to fill the earth with His glory. From the beginning of the garden, God's mission has always been to fill the earth with His glory. And so don't fall prey into forgetting the mission. And we show this in our desires for our church. Do we want the church to grow? We show our desire for mission in the way that we answer that question. Now, there is always the argument that I hear all the time. And I've served in a church of 16,000. I've served in a church of less than 50. I've served on every branch of the radar and been involved in churches of 400, 300, 200, I've, I've been all over the place, and I've heard the argument, small church versus big church. Well, I just feel so at home in a small church, big church. I just get lost in the crowds. All these different things about small church, big church. But listen to this carefully to me. The small churches, if they are fulfilling the great commission, then they won't be small long. Do you know how many lost people are in Newton County alone, whatever is 60% of 170,000, whatever the number is, of 100,000 maybe, just make it easy. That's how many lost people there are in this area. What does that mean? 
It means that there's enough people to fill every church in this community that we have. Don't be so myopic in your thinking. If you have the mentality of it's just us four and no more, or we want people that only look like us, that smell like us, that dress like us, that look like us, then we have lost the mission of God. So we show this in our desire for our church. We also show this in our desire for our friends and for our neighbors. Do we care that when you passed your neighbor mowing the lawn or whatever he was doing or she was doing, do we care that God wants them to worship him and that not worshiping him carries a stiff penalty? A penalty of eternal separation from him. Jesus comes into that temple and he sees all this stuff going on and he says this, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But there's a danger that we can fall trap in as well. Losing our love for God, forgetting the mission, well, we can also fall prey to replacing the mission. So many churches are so busy doing so much, but they're gaining little ground. Because they think that they're doing a good thing. They think that they have their eyes set on the mission. And all they've done is just replaced the mission. Look at what Jesus says here. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Then he says, but you, you in this house of worship, you have made it a den of robbers. From the looks of things, everything was going great. People were coming. Thousands upon thousands of people were coming to this worship service. The blood was flowing. Sacrifices were happening. But it was all wrong. Because it had the entire wrong focus. There's a little history that I want to tell you about why this is so wrong. Because those who set up in the temple were not concerned with worship, but were focused on this, their selves. Let me tell you the reason that I know that. The reason that I know that is because these money changers, as we see in the Bible, they had set up shop in the court of the Gentiles. Now, this is important because in the temple, the court of the Gentiles was the, was the outside court, and then the court of the Jews was the inside court, and then the Holy of Holies was a completely separate place. So in other words, the Gentiles, the ethne, the nations, the goyim, they only had one spot to come to worship. They could only enter through the court of the Gentiles. That's all they could do. That's the only place that they were allowed to worship. And so what do they have? They are bombarded with money changers and people carrying stuff through the temple. What a distraction that this must have been. Some say, well, uh, the Gentiles, if they were to come here, then they, they surely needed to exchange money for the temple tax, but plus they would have, they would have needed a, to exchange. They would have, why come all the way from Egypt with a dove just to get there, and the dove is not the right color or not the, has a spot on it? You travel all this way with a lamb, and then you get there, and then nothing. So some say, well, they, they needed to exchange their money. They needed to have an animal suited for worship instead of carrying that animal. But listen to this. This is the history part. According to to historical record, all of this was already available on the way up on the Mount of Olives. Everything was set up for them. 
outside the gates, outside the temple. Everything was already set up for them to get the right animal, to exchange their money. So what's going on here? History tells us, history tells us that Caiaphas, who was the high priest, he saw an opportunity for profit here, and he set up his own money changers right in the temple complex. In other words, he was trying to make a profit off of people's worship. Gross hypocrisy. And this is why Jesus, who knew the hearts of men, was so disgusted, and he shows it. And this, is, like I said, is the only aggressive act that is recorded by Jesus. And the reason that it is is to show you how serious Jesus, listen carefully, how serious Jesus takes the mission of God. And as a pastor, I just wonder how often we fall into the same trap. Thinking that all that matters is our own profit, our own comforts, placing our attitudes, our own likes in line with what pleases us instead of what pleases God. We think that we're doing right. But in the end, what we've done is we've replaced the mission of God by thinking that we are fulfilling the mission of God by focusing on ourselves. So you and I, in order to remedy this, we constantly have to keep the mind of Christ. We constantly have to have this mind in us who is in Christ that He had His mind so set on honoring God that nothing else mattered to Him. Nothing else mattered to him. Don't replace the mission of God with your own comforts and preferences. Instead, do what Jesus said. He confronted them and he said, it is written. In other words, he said, you should know the difference, guys. So what's our remedy? How can we know whether it's okay to do that or whether it's okay to engage in this? How do we do this? The Bible tells us so. That doesn't tell us some specific sometimes of whether or not it's okay for you to have a, a, a church in a bar. It doesn't tell us all those kind of specifics sometimes, but it does give a paradigm. It does give a complete paradigm of exactly how we're supposed to live, exactly how we're supposed to act. And I love the way Scripture, it goes everywhere because God is transcendent. He's above us all. It hits the pastor. It goes into the pew. It goes outside and it, goes, it starts and it, it is final and it is complete in the way that the sword edges its way through our hearts. None of us are immune to making sure that we are setting our mind, setting our hearts on God, on His mission, on His desire. And remember this. Remember this closely. No matter how accepted it may be, no matter how successful it may appear, you and I have to submit ourselves to God's approval. And so when He comes, will He find us faithful? Or will we be the subjects of His wrath. There's one final word that I want to tell you about tonight before we leave, and we learn it from the last verses. Look what happens. 
The chief priests, the scribes, heard it. And were seeking a way to destroy him. Why? For they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then look at verse 19. And when evening came, they went out of the city. We will never worship, never worship, if we refuse to respond to God's gracious call to focus and repent. Search your heart tonight. Are there things that you need to change about the way that you approach God in worship? Ask this question. Are you approaching God through Christ? You see, this is so significant because this is the second great messianic event that points to the significance of Christ's identity as the Messiah. Look at this. He does all of this. Look at verse 17. He was teaching them. This entire act was teaching them. His heart was on his sleeve. His life was on the line. And he still focused on others, teaching them what it means to love him, what it means to obey him, what it means to repent and follow him. Look at the way Mark is laid out, just briefly. Look at what happens. The triumphal entry, just look at the headings. And then right before verse 12, the cursing of the fig tree. And then in verse 15, he comes in and he cleanses the temple. And then in verse 20, he goes back to the fig tree. Why? The fig tree shows us that Jesus' intentions of repentance, as well as it shows us the impending judgment that's going to come. In just 37 years, the temple is going to be destroyed. The Pharisees wanted to snuff out Jesus. Because they were cut to the heart. Are you willing to submit yourself to his authority over your life? Over your worship? Jesus' actions, though harsh, listen, were an act of mercy. Were an act of calling men to repentance and experience grace that would be greater than any of their sins. The only recourse, listen carefully, for not repenting, as the fig tree shows, is destruction. My prayer for Oxford Baptist Church, my prayer for you, is that God would let us be a people that are so set on worshiping Him that nothing else matters. Because here's the truth tonight. Jesus could come back at any moment. And when he comes back, will he turn over these pews? Will he uproot this pulpit? Or will he find us faithfully serving, longing, expecting him? It's my prayer for you, for me, that he would find us faithful. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you so much for this night. We adore you. And Father, we pray that if there's any area in our life that you need to come and disrupt, please, 
come and do it. We submit ourselves to your loving care. We submit ourselves to the vine dresser, asking you, O God, to come and to prune us so that we can be more useful and effective for you. We ask these things confidently in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching ministry of Dr. Andy Brown, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Startville in Startville, Mississippi. If you would like to learn more about how we're taking the gospel from Startville to the ends of the earth, visit www.fbcstartville.com.